this class was named uh, about suffering for the sake of the body. So I feel like I owe you some reflections on that. And what I decided to do a few years ago was fold into this class something I had written first after the Littleton, Colorado massacre where the students had killed those other students. And then, of course, other horrible things have happened, the most dramatic of which probably is 9-11. But what I wrote was, I thought, when this happened, it was so amazingly in the news. And, and people in our church knew people in Colorado that were affected by that. And um, people were asking what do you say to these parents whose children were just shot in high school? What do you say? What do you do? And I had never tried to put together a, a larger, more or less exhaustive or systematic guide for myself or for the elders, but that's what I did here. That's what this is. So I wrote that then, and then I've, I've adapted it as the years have gone by, and I've thought about other things. So I'm just going to tick these off. I won't take time to read the text, most of them, I want to bullet uh, kinds of things to watch out for when you're ministering to people uh, in pain. And um, I, I set it up with, with the uh, Littleton and 9-11. So I'm, I'm going to skip all that and get right down to it. These, these have a kind of order to them. And I'll just read them and comment on them briefly because we have about... 40 minutes or so to do this. The first thing you want to do is pray. Ask God for his help for you and for those you want to minister to. Ask him for wisdom and compassion and strength and a word fitly chosen. Ask that those who are suffering would look to God as their help and hope and healing and strength. Ask that he would make your mouth a fountain of life. Pray like Moses prayed. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the gentle rain upon the tender grass and as the showers upon the herb. Isn't it wonderful when in a crisis situation you're there, your words become that? That they're not hurtful, they're not artificial, they're not phony, they're not over-the-top pietistic. They're just real and helpful. That's what we pray for. So pray like crazy because there are no canned things here. These aren't, these aren't little sardines, you know. You know we've got 21 things we're going to pull out of our can to use in suffering. I hope you don't go there with these, but that you just catch on to the flavor of these and ask God to build them into your soul so that it's authentic. Number two, feel and express empathy with those most hurt by this great evil and loss. Weep with those who weep. You can't turn feelings on and off. 
That's why we pray. You need to feel. Jesus does. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us, but one who in every way was tested like we are, yet without sin. Empathy. Jesus felt, feels with us. And we, if you can come into a situation and feel that that can be expressed. A little warning here. I had the warning for later, but I'll stick it in here. Um, don't say, I understand. <laughs> That's a stupid thing to say. Okay, so don't say, don't come in, don't come in beside somebody who's kneeling over their dead child or who just learned that they had cancer and say, I understand. Because they're going to scream, you don't understand, you can't, you don't, you don't know what I'm dealing with. You see a little bit of it. So it just sounds naive. You're not in their skin. I think it's far better to say, I can't imagine what you're dealing with. That's true. I understand is not true. You don't. Even if you've walked through the same thing, they may bestow on you the blessing of saying, nobody understands like you. But that will be a reflex of other things you've said, not I understand. Don't, don't say, I can feel what you're feeling. Don't say, I've been there. That all sounds like you're minimizing their pain. That's what it feels like. I don't care if you think that or feel that. That's the way it will come across. Don't, don't go there. Say other things. We'll get to that. Number three. Feel and express compassion because of the tragic circumstances of so many loved ones and friends who have lost more than they could ever estimate. Express compassion. Say, I'm so sorry. Don't, don't try to say anything big and fancy. If you come into a situation where a huge loss has just happened, feel the loss and say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And then just sit there. Job's friends were there for seven days without a word. That was their golden moment. And when they opened their mouths, they put their foot straight in. I've come to a lot of people in horrible situations and I, I don't say much. If they ask me to say, I say. But mainly you hug. I'll get into that too. I'm starting to jump ahead of myself. Number, number four. Take time and touch, if you can, and give tender care to the wounded in body and soul. Roland Erickson, just give you a little illustrations will come to my mind as we go along here. Roland Erickson was the grand old statesman of Bethlehem, my first 15 years here. And then, and then uh, he died. But before he died, he had an adopted son that he had adopted from hmm, Ethiopia, I believe. 
and he was 25 years old. I was living at the time, this would be in 1983 probably, where Tom Steller lives today over in 1604. The hospital right down here was called Metropolitan, I believe, 1983. And I got a phone call. David was in surgery, the son, and he died. It was going to be a relatively simple surgery, they thought. And uh, this is irrelevant to the point, but it was a human error. When they, when they fixed the aorta back on, they didn't tack it right. And as soon as they took him off the machines, the little flap went, bang, and just stopped everything. And before they could get back in and fix it, he was dead. So they come out to Rollin, who's there just waiting for his surgery, and, and they said, we lost him. Out of the blue. He, this is not the kind of surgery where you're supposed to lose him. He's on the phone within five minutes to me. I live two blocks away. He calls me. He says, Johnny, Pastor John. <laughs> Pastor John, they, they lost David. I'm speechless. I'll be there. <laughs> so I'm, I walk straight over to the hospital. Now, what do you do? What would you do? You, and I've done this, goodness knows how many times, did it last September with my son. You walk into the room. You don't say a thing. You take him and you weep your eyes out. And I thought, you know, I thought this morning I... There are some things you don't want to see very often, even though it's very beautiful. And that's two grown men in embrace, both of them heaving with sobs. You don't want to watch that very often. That's all I did. And then I, I don't remember after that. They need to talk. So you, you can ask some questions. You can say, what did, what did they tell you? What, what happened? He needs, to, he needs to narrate the horror. That hug is really important. One of the brothers we talked last night, he's a doctor, and doctors have to be professionally careful. But at one point he just said to him, do you need a hug? I think that's a good way to do it if you are in a relationship where this would be a little bit strange. It's not strange if you're a pastor. You can hug anybody. You've got professional license to hug people. Hold out the promise that God will sustain and help those who cast themselves on him for mercy and trust in his grace he will strengthen you for the impossible days ahead for spite, in spite of all darkness. In other words, you're not addressing here the problem of evil. You're addressing the impossible feelings like, I cannot go on. My, I can't go on without my husband. I can't go on without my son. I can't go on like this. There is no future. My life is ruined. Probably the best way to express this is in prayer. Wayne Grudem called me when his son's 23-year-old wife was killed after four months of marriage, weeping on the other end of the phone, 
in Phoenix because his dead daughter-in-law was in the medical examiner's office over at Regent's Hospital and his son was there. Would I go? I'll go. So walk in there. It's a horrible place. You don't want to go to the medical examiner's office. It's so cold and it has to be slick, you know, because you've got to clean it easy. And uh, what would you do? 25 years old, 24 years old, been married four months, and his wife is dead in the back room. He hasn't seen her yet. I walked in, and I just sat down beside him, and I didn't know what to do. Didn't know where he was spiritually. Didn't know what he would receive. I just sat there trying to discern. My presence meant Dad had called his good friend John and John standing by his boy in his father's place. That's what I meant. That was the meaning of my presence. That's enough. And there came a point, and I just leaned over, and I said, let's pray. I prayed things like this. I said, oh, God. Oh, God, help him. Help him. Affirm that Jesus Christ tasted hostility from men and knew that it was what it was to be unjustly tortured and abandoned and to endure overwhelming loss and then to be killed so that he is now sympathetic mediator for us with God. Now, that's a long sentence to say something very simple. Isn't it remarkable? I, I find it remarkable that if you walk into a situation where people are already ministering, one, one of the things you will hear pretty regularly in certain settings is, God knows. God knows. Like, what is that supposed to mean? It's helpful, evidently, because it, it, I think it is. God's said. Well, what it means most deeply is that um, Jesus Christ has gone through horror in his life. Our God and our King and our priest are not in ivory palaces looking down on a world of woe and saying, I wonder what that's like. I want to try to love them. I want to try to be helpful to them, but I wonder what that's like. God sent his Son into the world to walk through the greatest miseries, stayed single, by the way, all the way to the end and chased and then died a tortured, horrible death in order that we might go to someone and sooner or later say, you know, I can't imagine what you're going through, but God can. God can. He sent his son and in his son, he felt some of what you're dealing with. Number seven, declare that this murder... Talk about Littleton, Colorado now, or the trade towers coming down. Declare that this murder was a great evil and that God's wrath is greatly kindled by the wanton destruction of human life created in his image. That's important that somewhere along the way, people who are going to hear you ultimately say God was in charge of this, know You hate murder, and it's evil, 
And God is wrathful against murderers. So you, you will totally distort this seminar if you say, we got the message about sovereignty so dominantly that God can't be mad at murderers because he ordains murderers. If you say that, you're not delivering my message. That's your message. My message is God hates murder. He hates what he ordains here. It's the way we make sense out of the Bible. Thou shalt not kill. I hate murder. And then he ordains the death of his son. And he controls all of life. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes. So we need to say loud and clear, the, the boy who shot your son did a wicked thing. God disapproves of it and is going to burn him in hell unless he repents. And if he repents, he burned his sin and his son's death on the cross. And therefore, no injustice will ultimately be done if you forgive this boy. Because Jesus either bore it or they will bear it. And you don't need to bear it. Don't live with a lifelong bitterness towards the murderer of your son. Acknowledge that God has permitted a great outbreak of sin against his revealed will. Against his revealed will. His sovereign will happened. His revealed will didn't happen. And that we do not know all the reasons why he would permit such a thing now when it was in his power to stop it. So you can use the language of permission and that God's will was broken. The will revealed in his Ten Commandments. And you don't have the answers. Most of the people that come up to me after a service and want to pray about something and they say, why? Why is God letting this go on? Or why is this? My, my answer is, I don't know the detailed answer. I can just give you a few big picture answers. And you know those already, probably. So let's just pray that God would help you discern what God is doing, if it would be helpful to know. Express the truth that Satan is a massive reality in the universe that conspires with our own sin and flesh in the world to hurt people and to move people to hurt others, but stress that Satan is within and under the control of God. You understand, don't you, that I'm not giving you a, a uh, syllabus here for what you do in every circumstance. I'm giving you the array of things that could be said at some point along the way as you're dealing with people. Not that you do each of these, but to stress the reality of Satan is an important worldview piece that people need to get into their minds and hearts so that they can make sure he's in his proper place. And his proper place is real and ugly and not ultimate. Number 10. Express that these terrorists, thinking about the New York situation, 9-11, rebelled against the revealed will of God and did not love God or trust him or find in God their refuge and strength and treasure, but scorned his ways and his person. That's not too different from the one we've already seen. 
Since rebellion against God was at the root of his, this act of murder, let us all fear such rebellion in our own hearts and turn from it and embrace the grace of God in Christ and renounce the very impulses that caused this tragedy. So now you're, you're moving to help. This will be some time later after the tragedy as you're trying to help people prosper from the, all that God's doing. And one of the things is to recognize that murder came from rebellion against God. Are you going to rebel against God and join them in the very thing that brought your suffering? You don't want to. You want to let it have a sanctifying effect, not a rebellious, rebellion-producing effect. Number 12. Point the living to the momentous issues of sin and repentance in our own hearts and the urgent need to get right with God through his merciful provision of forgiveness in, in Christ so that a worse fate than death will not overtake us. I think one of the things we need to be very cautious about is that letting sentiment and sentimentality take over as we deal with people who've walked through pain. We should be extremely hesitant to be theologically forceful or provocative in those early hours and days. But don't stay there. Don't stay squeamish. There are big issues of sin in their own lives that have to be dealt with. That's the way Jesus dealt with it in Luke 13. They're saying, what about the sin of Pilate who slaughtered these people? And Jesus said, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. Now, it seems so insensitive, right? Well, Jesus wasn't sentimental. He was blunt most of the time. He hardly ever pulls any punches. He always says things that seem tough. Well, we should eventually get to the point where we say to a person a year later, you know what? I think you might be angry in a way that shows that this loss was your idol. That's tough. Risky. Somebody's got to say it eventually. <laughs> Grieving people are sinners. Not because they're grieving, they're just sinners. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, they're a sinner, everybody's a sinner. You can't ignore the reality of sin. And so we need to confront it. Friends confront. They don't just constantly stroke and say, oh, you're, you're okay, I'm, I'm so bad. And meanwhile, there's just selfishness and sin flourishing in a heart while they're crying, maybe. I've, I've learned a long time ago in my counseling office, when I meet with people, that I do not jump to the conclusion that tears mean remorse. Tears simply mean somebody's in pain. And the pain could be, I don't like the consequences of my sin, and I'm angry about them, and they really hurt. And they're not upset with their sin at all. You better make that discernment pretty quick or you're going to go down the wrong road in counseling. If that person is crying because they, they got sick from their sin or they lost a relationship because of their sin 
or lost a job because of their sin, and there's no moral brokenness for their own pride and sin, then the tears are worthless as far as repentance goes. And they need to wake up. They, they think because they're so sad that they must be penitent. And they're not. They're just sad about the consequences. I mean, there are many, many people in courtrooms when they're sentenced to 10 years in jail or life imprisonment who break down. And they're not the least sorry for what they did. They just know I don't want to lose 10 years of my life. This is really ugly. And I'm sad about it. And proud to the core inside. So discern in your counsel, in your friendships, whether a person is getting to the point where they might need some firm exhortation about considering selfishness or idolatry. Thirteen, remember that even those who trust in Christ may be cut down like these thousands who were in New York and Washington, but that does not mean they have been abandoned by God or not loved by God. Even in those agonizing hours of suffering, God's love conquers even through calamity. So even Christians, even Christians can be swept away as I'm sure there were many Christians in the, in the towers and in the Pentagon. Point that out from Romans 8. Mingle heart-wrenching weeping with unbreakable confidence in the goodness and sovereignty of God who rules over and through sin and the plans of rebellious people. In other words, as you move towards making affirmations about the sovereignty of God, Make sure they're said with the right emotional demeanor. Takes, I met a man, just timing is a big issue here. I met a man in Orlando years ago. When I was there, I think, speaking for some group, I forget which. And uh, he had a son who at that time was about 17, had the mind of about a 18-month-old, and uh, had, a, had a fairly... Uh, mature body in a wheelchair and and uh, the van was totally fitted out. I mean, their whole life was built around this for the last 17 years. And uh, he was telling me with radiance what a gift this boy is to the church because for whatever gracious reason from God, he smiled all the time. Couldn't talk. He just smiled in his wheelchair. And the church loved him, had loved him all these years. But then he told me, took me about eight years to accept this. I'm seeing, I'm seeing him 17 years later, and he seems absolutely, totally on top of it and, and uh, in charge and emotionally able to affirm God's sovereignty and, and all that. But, but he, he just confided in me, it took, it took me about eight years to accept this. So if you're living with that person during those eight years, what do you do? You don't, don't, you don't assume that they won't make it, that they won't come out. You don't assume they're going to throw away the faith. They might, but you don't assume that. You assume they're in, in, a, in a clouded, dark, hard season, and you're going to stick by them and help them. You're going to help them get through to the point where they can look at this with enough confidence in God and distance and that, okay, 
We'll find a pattern of life that works, and God will somehow turn this for good. Number 15. Trust God for his ability to do the humanly impossible and bring you through the nightmare and in, in some inscrutable way bring good out of it. So you're pleading for them, let's trust God. We, we can't see how he's going to do it. It looks impossible, but we're going to trust him to bring us through. So you call for faith. 16. Explain when the time is right and they have the wherewithal to think clearly that one of the mysteries of God's greatness is that he ordains some things come to pass which he forbids and disapproves. In other words, this is, this is what some of you right now are having the hardest time with, and understandably so, because I'm arguing that he disapproves, even is very angry at the very thing which he ordained. And so what you want to do for a person who's never even thought that, this may be months later, a year later, and you're trying to build into their lives larger and larger biblical categories for handling their past and present and future. And you say, you know, in order to make sense out of the Bible, we need to have a category in our mind for the fact that God has two kinds of wills. He has a sovereign will by which everything comes to pass, and he has a will of... of uh, Demand or a will of command or a revealed will which he said, by which he says don't, don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't lie and don't kill. And then he ordains all those things ultimately because he's sovereign and could stop any one of them from happening at any time. And, and get that category in their heads because then they'll read their Bible and they won't stumble at the cross because the cross is where that is most clear that God hates murder and he ordained the murder of his son so that we would live. 17. Express your personal cherishing of the sovereignty of God as the ground of all your hope as you face the human impossibilities of life. The very fulfillment of the new covenant promises of our salvation and preservation hang on God's sovereignty over rebellious human wills. I think a key here is uh, your personal uh, testimony. In other words, somewhere along the way, when somebody is saying, I just can't see how you could believe in a sovereign God in view of what happened to me. Instead of being argumentative, be, be testimonial. Here you got to be real. You say, you know, I, I know that's hard for you to grasp, but I don't know how I would cope with what I have been through, am going through right now, if I didn't believe God was totally sovereign over my life and able to turn these things for the good of others and my good. I, I just, to me, his sovereignty is the key to my hope. I, I, I wish you saw it that way, but I, I can understand why it's hard to see it that way. A testimony about God. A, a very specific application is this. How do you know you're going to wake up and be a Christian tomorrow? I wonder what your answer to that is. If your answer is, oh, the continuity of my personality, well, that's pretty fragile. That's pretty fragile. People's personalities change. 
experiences make you change your mind about God. And so what makes you think you're going to wake up and be a believer in the morning? And the biblical answer is the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 32, 40. I will put my law within you and I will not let you depart from me. My only confidence that I'm going to wake up and be a believer in the morning is that God is going to make me a believer in the morning. He's going to hold me. He's going to hold me in the palm of his hand and he's going to work his will in my life. And he's going to, he who began a good work in me will complete it till the last day. So part of my testimony to the person who's stumbling over the sovereignty of God, I would say one of the reasons I love the sovereignty of God over the human will is that my will is so fickle and so fragile that I don't even know if I'll be a Christian in the morning if God doesn't hold on to me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh God, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's the only reason I have any hope that I'll persevere to the end. Testimony. Testimony about your own walk with and love for and dependence on the sovereignty of God. 18. Count God your only lasting treasure because he is the only sure and stable thing in the universe. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Urge that on them. Bear witness. In the end, we're going to lose everything. Everybody dies. What was I reading yesterday? Oh, an interview with Billy Graham in Christianity Today. Somebody said, we heard you say that long ago you read a book on how to die and it helped you, but you never had read a book on how to age. They asked Billy Graham, who turned 90 yesterday. He said, yeah, that's right. We will all die. And on the way to die, we will lose, 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 lose until there's a tube in our nose and a machine is doing our breathing and we're going <gasps> and glazes on our eyes and our fingertips are cold and our toes are black and our whole family wishes we'd die and we wish we'd die and we don't die. That's what most of you are going to go through. The only thing that's going to be stable there is Jesus. So learn to treasure him above everything. Remind everyone that to live is Christ and to die is gain. For those who've gone and for you when you die. Pray that God would incline their hearts to his word, open their eyes to his wonders, unite their hearts to fear him and satisfy them. Keep praying for people that as they're struggling with their losses, these things would happen. Their eyes would be open to the superior wonders of God in his word. Unite their hearts to him. And this is the last one. At the right time, sound the trumpet. 
that all this good news is meant by God to free us for radical sacrificial service for the salvation of men and the glory of Christ. Help them see that one message of all this misery is to show us that life is short and fragile and followed by eternity and small man-centered ambitions are tragic. In other words, tell them not to waste their lives. Let their grief and their pain open eternity and show them how short, fragile, precious this life is and how strong God is in it. I haven't lost too many people close to me. My mother died. That's the one that had the biggest effect on me when I was 28 years old. And I remember being in a bookstore right after the funeral. I was still in Greenville before I came back to Minneapolis. And I was in a bookstore. And I was looking at the poetry section because I like poetry. And I remember taking a book down and, and opening up and just feeling a huge sense of the reality of eternity and the preciousness of everything, the feel of the pages and the smell of the store, the sky outside. There was just an amazing aliveness to that moment, all owing to my mother's death. Because when you walk up to eternity and you look at a person that was alive and they're they're there, you wake up, you can't be dead. You're touching them. They look alive and just, you'll never wake up. I mean, those moments, they, if God is merciful, they open us to realities and feelings and possibilities that are untold if we're willing to get really radical. Okay, life is going to be short here. Mom's gone to heaven. Daddy's now gone to heaven. Felicity's gone to heaven. Uh, we're losing people right and left. People are going to heaven every day. This is real or not real? Are we going to play games here and dink around with computers? Or are we going to get serious about what counts in life? That's where you want, that's where you want people to go. They can't go there right away. All right, they can't do that right away. But sooner or later, you want them to start taste. You know, come on, let's feel the breezes again. This life is going to be lived here, and we're going to drop and go to heaven and be with them forever. So let's give it everything we have. Romans 8 is a good place to end. And uh, let me point you to a part of it that you may not have thought about before. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, big broad word, danger, or sword? <laughs> Answer, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, no, in all those things, in, in the famine, in the nakedness, in the peril, in the sword, in the persecution, in the being slaughtered all day long, like in Orissa, 
India, or the stains, three of them, the man and his sons, in being burned alive, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, what does that mean? We are being killed all day long. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? And I think my old teacher, Dan Fuller, was right when he suggested it means this. A conqueror slays the enemy and they lie dead at his feet. And he's alive, victorious. More than a conqueror means the enemy gets up and serves him. You don't just decimate death. It serves you. You don't just decimate the devil. He serves you with his thorns in the flesh that make you holy. So, Paul concludes, Therefore, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. They're all going to not only not separate us, they're going to be doorways to paradise and serve us. So that's the confidence that I pray that you will take away from this seminar. Let me, let me pray. Well, Lord, we... We've spent five hours together or so and I prayed at the beginning for help and I pray now at the end for forgiveness for any way that my sin has messed up your truth and your heart. So cancel out anything unhelpful that I've said and anything that's been true and with the right demeanor I pray that you'd confirm it apply it. And then I pray that you keep these brothers and sisters in your word till the day they're gone and that you would strengthen them. And those right now who will have to walk out of here into pain, I pray for an unusual grace. I really mean that, Lord. An extraordinary, personally divine, designed in heaven, grace for this challenge right now. And I'm sure there are dozens of those in this room. I commend them to your grace, which is able to strengthen them and give them an inheritance with all those who are sanctified by faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.